Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, as we return to our study of this epistle from Paul to Titus, who is serving on the island of Crete. The title of this message is A Redeemed Society Part 2, for real this time. <laughs> and our text for today is Titus 2, verses 6 through 10. To set the table for this message, let's read the whole chapter. And like last time, I would encourage you to pay attention to the purpose clauses. The so that statements, because that tells us the, the purpose and the aim of these instructions. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In the business world, there are all kinds of reasons that businesses fail. Uh, Many times it's due to no fault of their own. Could be something like COVID happens and government shuts everything down. You lose your customers, you lose your income, and there goes your business. Uh, It could be other things, market dynamics that change or Um, You just lack the capital to keep things going the way you want. But sometimes businesses fail because of incompetence uh, or their inability to serve customers well. Uh, A restaurant, for example, could go under because they just serve bad food or the customer or the the, uh, waiters uh, are rude to their customers. Sometimes failed business, business ventures go under completely and sometimes Uh, They change ownership or they hire new management and try and have a second go at it. We sometimes see signs under new ownership, right? Under new management. Basically what that business is trying to say is something like, we've changed. Check us out again. We know you got sick last time you were here, but everything's different this time. Right? They're trying to change the reputation. We're, We're new. We're fresh. Same name, different people. Well, when a person receives the gift of salvation, when they are forgiven of their sin and set free from the penalty and power of sin, they are under new ownership and under new management. 
Jesus Christ, the Lord, is their new owner. As we talked about in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, that we are slaves of Christ. And the Spirit is the new manager of our lives as He convicts us of our sin, as He encourages us and comforts us and instructs us and empowers us to obey. The believer is a new creature in Christ with new ability to love God and live a God-glorifying life. And the Spirit's purpose in inspiring Paul to write this letter is to call Christians to live in such a way that their lives proclaim to the world that they are under new ownership and under new management. Paul's concern, indeed the Holy Spirit's concern here, is the reputation of Christ in the world. Back in verse 5, we learn that Paul's concern is to see believers in Jesus Christ live consistently with the Scripture so that as unbelievers observe their lives, they don't have the basis to dishonor the Word of God or to slander God or to blaspheme God. And then in verse 8, Paul desires that church leaders conduct themselves in such a way that those who oppose the church will be rendered speechless because they have nothing bad that they can point to in the lives or in the speech of leaders. And then in verse 10, the conduct of slaves should add to the attractiveness of the gospel as they live differently from the rest of the slaves and both fellow slaves and masters are attracted to the gospel. And then finally in verse 14, we learn that the reason Jesus Christ came to this earth and died is to purchase a people for himself and that now as the new owner of his people, that he would make his people zealous for good deeds. That they would put their ownership by Christ on display in how they live. In short, the way any of us individually or all of us collectively live has an impact on the reputation of God's word, God's people, and God's gospel. And it reflects to those outside what we really think about Jesus Christ. We began studying this chapter a couple of weeks ago, looking at verses 1 to 5, where Paul begins to dis, uh, address different people in the church uh, divided by age. Uh, we consider the character, traits, and lifestyle of older men and older women and younger men, uh, excuse me, younger women should cultivate in their lives. And Paul also explains that the responsibility that older women have is not just to have personal character, but to teach the younger women how they are to live. Uh, the kinds of things that young women need to learn uh, are not, uh, cannot be totally taught and learned in a classroom. They are the kinds of things that require that personal one-on-one -on -one discipleship, living life together, providing personal instruction. And while Paul doesn't explicitly say that older men are to teach younger men, the same need uh, exists. There are younger men in our church who need older men to come alongside them and teach them. There are some young men who have grown up without a father or are growing up even now without, without a father. There are young men who have grown up or are growing up without a believing or godly father. And so we have a responsibility as older men, those of you who are older men, I'm technically still a younger man, to teach the younger men. There are men from their teens to their 30s who need an older man to step into their lives to help them through the challenges and insecurities and 
sin struggles and encourage them to work hard and be faithful and grow in Christ. But most of all, there's one primary lesson that Paul says younger men need to learn. And we find that here in verse 6. Look at it again. It says, likewise, urge, or the word is really exhort, exhort the young men to be sensible. To be sensible. Paul has essentially given four characteristics to older men and older women, uh, respectively. He's actually given seven characteristics or responsibilities to younger women. And he gives one to younger men. And just as a side note, I don't think that's because he thinks younger men have it all together and this is just one area they need to grow in. I think it's more likely that this reflects something of his sense of the capacity of younger men uh, as opposed to younger women. Well, remember that when we were identifying older men, uh, the opposite of that, younger men, we're talking about men who are adults, not young children, all the way up to their 40s, even potentially up to 50. So the range is broad and covers a wide swath of life. It includes those who are just getting started, providing for themselves, maybe they have a new wife, all the way up to those who are sending their kids out of the home and uh, entering into the last phase of their working year. There's a huge gamut of life that encompasses what Paul has in mind here as younger men. So men, listen up, pay attention. But not just men, women as well. As we noted last time in verse 2, this is one of the attributes that are given to older men. And then in verse 5, it's described as something that younger women should cultivate. But even more than that, in verse 12, as you look there, we, are, we see that the grace of God has appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. So sensibility, if you will, is one of the universal traits of those who are transformed by the work of grace. So we all need to understand what this word means. Now, last time I defined this word as to control your mind or to control your thoughts in such a way that you think about the world with humility. To control your thoughts in such a way that you think about the world with humility. The word is sophroneo in the Greek and several English translations, especially one you, many of you have, the ESV translates this as self-control. And that's not necessarily a wrong translation. There's uses in ancient uh, Greek where that's uh, a significant emphasis. But the primary focus of this term is the mind. Usually when we think about self-control, we think about things related to personal discipline or controlling one's impulses. You know, when you're sitting at the uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving table and you're thinking about having seconds of dessert. Uh, that's not the kind of self-control that Paul is talking about here with sophroneo. Again, the, the emphasis of this word is on the mind. In fact, this term is used in Mark 5.15 when Mark is talking about that incident where Jesus comes across, he encounters the man who had been uh, possessed by a, a legion of demons. And it says that after Jesus cast out the demons, the man was in his right mind. That's the same word here. Paul uses this term when talking about how Christians should think in Romans 12, 2, verse 3, where he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Same word. That verse in particular points us to the uh, idea that we are to think with humility. We're not to think too highly of ourselves or 
of the things in the world, but we are to think rightly from God's perspective. Uh, the sensible person doesn't make rash decisions that are regretted soon after. They don't make knee-jerk reactions to situations that require time and information to understand more fully. Instead, they take in all the available information and aim to keep it all in perspective. The sensible person really follows the counsel of Proverbs 18.13 that says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it's a folly and a shame to him. The sensible person listens. So much of what we see in our society demonstrates the reality of that folly, isn't it? Mobs and spontaneous protests and riots are all the antithesis of sensibility because they're always based on limited information and they're not rational responses. The sensible person is able to understand things in their broader context so as not to elevate or uh, uh, underestimate or underemphasize uh, their importance. All right, we all have our natural response to things. We look at headlines, we read articles, and we instinctively respond based on what we know and what we think. But the sensible person doesn't trust their initial instant reaction as being the truth. They take time to investigate, to consider, to think, to, to bring in more information, to consider other sources. And then eventually, even though they might come to a conclusion, they might form their opinion, they are still willing to recognize that there might be more information that would alter their thoughts. They have humility as they think about the world around them. The sensible person doesn't allow themselves to be unduly influenced or easily deceived. The problem that many have today is they assume that the voices that they hear on television or in the media or the things they read are all having their best interest in mind. That's naive. It's like asking the car salesman, is it time to upgrade my car? <laughs> to media personalities, every day is a good day to be outraged about something or afraid of something. The sensible person doesn't necessarily shut out external voices, but they weigh them in the balance. The sensible person is humble enough to recognize that they are not the center of the universe and the source and arbiter of truth. Right? Whether it's through personal study or experience, the, personal, the, the sensible person recognizes that there's much more beyond their experience and much more that they haven't studied that they need to learn and grow in. The sensible person is controlled by God's truth, not by emotions or passions or hormones. They certainly have emotions, but they guard them and speak truth to themselves rather than let themselves get carried away by their feelings and assumptions. How about this? The sensible person listens more than they talk. Now, we all have different gifts. Some of you have the ability to carry on a conversation for hours with no one else participating. <laughs> Others of us are quite content to let other people talk, but we do a lot of talking in the head, right? We all need to listen well, to ask questions, to draw out the heart and mind of others, and then respond accordingly. So, young men especially, how do you measure up? What are your thoughts uh, about the world? What are they based on? How much do you consider a matter before you come to a conclusion? When you disagree with someone, is it based on just who they are? That they're your parent or they're someone of the opposing political party? Or do you agree or disagree based on the merit of the ideas? Do you ask questions to check your assumptions before you analyze other positions? Do you know what motivates others? 
and how they got to their perspective before you make a judgment call. We must be a sensible people. All of us must be. In a world where God has judged society by giving them over to a depraved mind, there should be a night and day difference between how we respond and how we think about the world and how the rest of the world thinks about everything. There should be a marked difference between how the world responds to political and social issues and how believers respond to those issues. There should be a striking difference between how believers respond to pandemics and natural disasters and how the world responds to them. We must be a sensible people. We should not be a people who have common sense, but a godly sense. Now, depending on your translation, verse 7 begins with words like, in all things, or perhaps the ESV says, um, uh, in all respects. Show yourself in all respects. That, that phrase, that prepositional phrase, in all things, really belongs to the end of verse 6, or at least to, to the verb to be sensible. Whether you attach it to being sensible or to the next phrase, as Paul speaks to Titus, doesn't really change the meaning about anything, but let me just give you three quick reasons why it should actually go with being sensible. First, the, the preposition translated in is actually the verb that's, that means about or concerning. Uh, that preposition makes more sense when, when you're talking about thinking than it, when you're talking about showing or, or demonstrating. Uh, secondly, elsewhere where, where Paul uses a phrase like this, as he does in verse 9 and also in verse 10, the prepositional phrase attaches to what comes before, not what comes after. And that's one of Paul, Paul's styles, at least in this particular text. And then third, when Paul, as Paul moves through this whole chapter, talking to different groups of people, he always starts each section by identifying the group and then speaking to them. And if our translations largely are the way that they are, if they're accurate, then Paul breaks that pattern when he speaks to Titus. So it makes more sense that he's consistent with that pattern. Again, either way, the meaning isn't changed, but there you have it. And now if I lost you with all that grammar, here's the point of all that. The best way to understand Paul's instruction to Titus to exhort young men is this. You could phrase it this way. Younger men, likewise, exhort them to be sensible about everything. To be sensible about everything. Young men and all of us should have a mind that is controlled by the word of God so as to think humbly about every matter under the sun. So it's not just that we're to come to church and think about the Bible sensibly, but when we go out in the world and we enjoy sports and we work and we have hobbies, we can think anywhere we want. No, we are to, be, we are to think sensibly, humbly about everything. We are to take every thought captive and bring it to the obedience of Christ. So that's the instruction to younger men and indeed to all of us as well. Next, we, as we turn to verses 7 and 8, Paul clearly gives instructions to Titus in particular. But Titus, as a delegate of the apostle and as a leader in the church, these instructions apply to any of us who have some form of leadership in the church. Look again at verses 7 and 8. In all things, he says, or you could say just you yourself, be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. 
In short, what Paul is saying to Titus is that while Titus is exhorting others, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, while he's in that process, slaves as well, he is to be an example and a model of what he's teaching. He should be one that others can look to and say, oh, that's what it looks like. Specifically here, Titus is to model good deeds. Good deeds. At the end of verse 14, we learn that Christ's desire and purpose in saving us is that we would be a people zealous for good deeds. Now, we'll study that more in depth in January, Lord willing. But for now, understand that the godly character and roles we learn about in verses 1 through 10 should naturally result in a people who are committed to good deeds, to doing what is good, to ministering to others. Now, we know that man-made religion focuses on good deeds as that which saves you or that which earns you favor uh, with God or with who, whatever deity that religion has. And so because of that, it's easy for us to hear good deeds or good works and naturally respond negatively because we've been well taught that you can't do good deeds to make yourself um, good with, with God. You can't contribute to your salvation. Strangely enough, the phrase good deeds is used almost exclusively in what you're not supposed to do in our circles sometimes. But good deeds should mark the Christian life. Our lives should be manifesting continually good deeds, good works. As Paul says in chapter 3 verse 14 here of Titus, we must be engaging in good deeds, always ready to meet pressing needs. And Titus, and by extension all leaders in the church today, should model kindness and compassion and grace as well as serving those in need in and outside the church. Pastors and leaders should not live in ivory towers, if you will, or in the study room and just focus exclusively on the spiritual things and let other people do the, the, the dirty work. No, we should all be engaging as we have opportunity to meet the needs that are around us. Jesus certainly did that. He got his hands dirty, if you will. He was the one who was really doing all the work. The apostles followed Christ in being actively involved just because they said, hey, appoint uh, men to take care of the, the widows doesn't mean that they weren't involved in doing good deeds. They were model and models and examples as other leaders were as well. Leaders must be on the front lines caring for the spiritual and material needs of Others showing the love of Christ as they have ability. I remember when I was in high school, we had switched to another church. And so I didn't know too many people, but there was one day when there was an opportunity to help someone move. And so I showed up to, to help. And I was shocked that the pastor was serving. You know, I was an immature high schooler. What did I uh, He was just supposed to be studying, right? No, he was helping. And I've thought about that many times over the years. And he served as an example and a model of how we should be serving in the church. So leaders, let's ensure that we are a model for good works, that other people can look at us, not for the sake of looking at us, but for the sake of exemplifying how we are to live and minister and serve others, because that will have a lasting impact. Well, another area that Titus and church leaders should model is purity in doctrine. Purity in doctrine. You see that? The way Paul phrases it there is purity in doctrine. Purity is really the positive translation of a word that means uncorrupted. 
their teaching should lack anything that destroys or ruins the lives of its hearers. Uh, when stated in such a stark way, you could ask, well, why would anyone teach something that's corrupted or something that, that causes corruption in the hearts and minds of believers? Well, no one would do that intentionally, or at least one would hope not. But the problem is that so much teaching that is corrupted, so much teaching that causes destruction, sounds good at first. It sounds good and uplifting. It it can elevate a person's self-esteem and self-worth and self-perception. It's enticing and even exciting at times. But in the end, anything that elevates man and lowers God destroys lives. I mean, just the other night I was talking to a biblical counselor who was telling me about a book written by a so-called Christian psychologist that teaches that we are inherently good. And whatever bad things that we do is, is a kind of a bad part of us. It's not our true core good self. It's, it's a bad part of us. And they justified it to sit, uh, biblically by saying, well, God is a trinity. He has different parts. And so we have multiple parts. We have a good part and a bad part. And so that bad part is not the true you. Now, such teaching certainly makes a sinner sound or feel better. Oh, good. I knew it wasn't me to begin with. But it destroys lives. And in one case, at least, it's destroying a family. Teaching like this causes people to shift blame and refuse to take responsibility for their actions, even though it sounds great on the surface. It might sound good to be told if you have enough faith, you can heal yourself. But how many souls have been crushed when told that the reason your loved one died is because they didn't have enough faith? It might sound good to say that God will bless you if you trust him. But how many homes have been devastated financially when someone sowed a seed to a preacher expecting God's blessing? How many Christians have let sin reign in their lives because they were convinced that God's grace is so wonderful that God doesn't care about your sin? And so you can sin with impunity. There are many kinds of teaching and doctrines that feel good and sound good at the first, but which corrupt souls and lives. And so we who teach must ensure that the teaching that we provide is free from corruption and that is full of truth. The next area which Paul and all church leaders must model is dignity. Dignity. You see that there at the end of verse 7. This is the same word used in verse 2 in the instructions to older men. And I would remind you that this means to be uh, worthy of respect. Uh, Leaders who... Among must not be people who relish in frivolous things and are given to trivialities. They must live with soberness and an elevated sense of what matters, what's important. They are to be mature in their thinking and behavior. And they are, when they do that, they are sought after for counsel and advice. People respect them because their life manifests wisdom and grace. We should not be, as many people think today, We should not be aiming to be the coolest and the hippest people in the church. We should not be the ones modeling the latest styles and broadcasting our familiarity with cultural fads. Instead, we should be modeling sincerity and purity and devotion to Christ. To be dignified obviously doesn't mean to be sinless. It also doesn't mean to be sullen or sad all the time. But it is to recognize that there are times to have fun 
There are times to be silly and laugh and joke, but then there's also times to settle down and take things seriously and focus on what's important. The last area that Titus and all church leaders should put on display here is in verse 8. To be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. To be sound in speech. The word sound is the noun form of the word in verse 1 that refers to sound doctrine. Also in verse 2, referring to sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. It's the term from which we get the word hygienic. And so it, it actually means to be healthy, healthy speech. Church leaders must model healthy speech. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Healthy speech is speech that is filled with grace. It's not judgmental. It's not harsh. It's not cutting. Grace-filled, seasoned speech is like the tongue of the wise in Proverbs 12, 18. It says, There is one who speaks rashly like thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Any of you are familiar with Ephesians 4.29? It says that no corrupting, unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as the word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Unwholesome words are words that tear down, words that destroy. They demoralize and discourage. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. There are times when we need to say something that stings to someone. When we need to confront someone about their sin or we need to convey some difficult news. But the way in which we do that can either move them toward repentance and healing or it can push them away. It can weaken them and destroy them. James 3 reminds us that words are powerful. Words can be like a matchstick that lights a forest on fire. Or, positively, they can motivate a weary army to victory. Leaders in the church do a lot of talking, right? We talk on platforms. We talk in front of classrooms. We talk in small group Bible studies. And then, of course, all of the innumerable conversations we have with people on matters of significance in people's lives. I can think back in my own life, as I'm sure you can in yours, of significant conversations where someone has spoken healthy words to you. Words that have shaped you. Words that helped you make significant decisions in your life. When you're in a position where you have that kind of influence, and the reality is every single one of us has that kind of influence, you need to be careful with what you say. You need to guard your words to ensure that your words not only line up with Scripture, but they are what that person needs in the moment. This kind of speech is beyond reproach, he says. When you speak graciously and kindly and compassionately and humbly, no one will be able to accuse you for your words. They might judge your actions. They might disagree with your decisions. But if you speak healthy words, words that are beyond reproach, they won't be able to say anything about how you've spoken to them. Now, obviously, none of us are going to be perfect, <laughs> always saying the right thing at the right time. We all know uh, that we have made grave errors uh, in such things. But this ought to be our aim and our desire. We must model as leaders how to speak this way so that we can all grow in how to speak the truth in love. 
And if you really want to grow in those things, I would encourage you to sign up for the counseling class that starts at the end of January, speaking the truth in love. Now think back to the life of Jesus. He was perfect, right? He loved God perfectly. He loved others perfectly. And yet the Pharisees opposed him at every step along the way. But the Pharisees were afraid because the Pharisees knew that the people could see through their hypocrisy, that there was nothing condemnable in Jesus. The Pharisees were afraid of turning the people against them if they opposed Jesus too much. They knew that they had no basis to oppose Jesus except for the fact that they were jealous of him. Or think about the believers in the book of Acts. Those who opposed the church had to make up accusations, again, as they did with Jesus, to make their persecution seem legitimate. But the church kept growing by leaps and bounds because as the unbelievers observed these people who were saved and transformed, they couldn't argue with their speech and they couldn't argue with their lives. Acts 2.47 says that they were having favor with all the people. Acts 5.13 says that the people held the believers in high esteem. Now, obviously that changed, especially as the gospel spread and went to Gentiles who uh, who didn't care at all about the, the lives of believers, who mocked the believers for living righteously. Peter writes in his letter to believers who were being persecuted even for doing good. So speaking and living an exemplary life is not a guarantee that, you're, that people won't oppose you, but it takes things out of the way that gives them fodder for their opposition. And sometimes, perhaps, your speech and your behavior will prick their conscience and the Spirit can use that to bring them to Christ. So there are the instructions to Titus and to leaders We come now to the final section where Paul speaks to slaves starting in verse 9. You see the word urge there in italics. It's not actually there. The the verb urge in verse 6 is brought down uh, by implication. This is where Paul focuses on how slaves who are part of the redeemed society should behave. Look again at verses 9 and 10. Urge bond slaves or exhort bond slaves or slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, not, uh, excuse me, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all, every respect. If you've been in church long enough to hear teaching to slaves from the various passages, you know that most often it's indicated that slaves, slavery in the first century was basically akin to modern employment. And so this passage or passages like this are taught as immediately applicable to those in the working world today. The problem is that is a gross oversimplification of first century slavery. It is true that first century slavery was something completely different than what we know of as the transatlantic slave trade, but it's also completely different than modern employment. It's really in a category of itself. Ancient slaves were owned property, as all slaves are. They could be bought and they could be sold. Their masters had a high degree of freedom in how they treated their slaves. They could treat them poorly or they can treat them well. But in practice, first century slaves in particular were treated generally fairly well. And in some cases, 
slavery was preferable to being free. In fact, one slave who earned his freedom wrote as he compared his life to a, uh, as a slave and now as a freedman, he said, why, what's wrong with me? Someone else kept me in clothes and shoes and supplied me with food and nursed me when I was sick. I served him only in a few matters. But now, miserable that I am, what suffering is mine, who am a slave to several instead of one. He was lamenting the reality that when he was a slave, he was well cared for. He was treated well. He didn't have to worry about all kinds of things, but now he's a slave to many instead of just one master. One historian notes that after 50 AD, it seemed happier to, it seemed a happier fate to be a rich man's slave than a poor freeborn citizen. Again, that's not a universal statement, just in many cases. In fact, if you were to walk down the street in a Greco-Roman city, you wouldn't be able to pick out who are the slaves and who are the freeborn people. They dressed the same way. Their skin was the same variety of tones. They often did a lot of the same kinds of jobs and responsibilities. To be a slave was not usually to be in a bad or sad state. Some freeborn people actually sold themselves into slavery to elevate their social position. Slaves were doctors and lawyers and accountants and teachers, as well as laborers and domestic servants. Now, my intention is not to glamorize slavery. My point is only to say that it's not, it wasn't the evil that we think of as slavery today because we compare it to more modern slavery. Really, one of the only universal statements that you can make about slavery is that all slaves are owned by someone. That ownership was sometimes permanent, it was sometimes it was temporary, but it was always a state of ownership. They had very limited rights, and their experience entirely depended on the character of their owner. In fact, one author says, a person's experience in slavery depended almost entirely on the customs of the owner's family, the business and the particular class of society to which the owner belonged, and the character of the owner himself. Now, for their part, owners had significant incentive to treat their slaves well. Uh, their slaves were a significant investment. Many of them were purchased at no small cost. And their slaves brought to the owner significant income, not just by the work that they accomplished, but also by bringing money in through a variety of means. And even after a slave was able to purchase their freedom, they still actually had certain obligations to their former owner that made the owner incentivized to ensure his slaves prospered to the degree that they could. Slavery was so entrenched in the culture at that time that no one, not even slaves, ever advocated for the abolition of slavery. And if you're thinking about the slave revolts that happened in centuries before Christ, those slavery revolts were not about abolishing slavery, but simply about a, a, uh, accomplishing the freedom of those who participated in the revolt. In fact, wherever slave revolts were successful in a particular city, what would happen is the people would basically swap places. The slaves would become the free people and the free people would become the slaves. Now this might seem shocking to say. I don't know, maybe what I've already said has been shocking, but the Bible does not teach that it is inherently wrong for one person to own another person. The Bible never advocates slavery. It doesn't promote it, doesn't advocate it doesn't suggest that it's a good thing. That's a grave misinterpretation of those in America who used the Bible to justify slavery. They took the description and turned it into prescription. That's a false interpretation, a bad hermeneutic. 
But neither does the Bible condemn slavery as an inherent and objective evil. And we know this because the Bible never tells believing masters to sell their slaves. Or excuse me, to to free their slaves. And we'll see a passage that identifies that in a bit. The Bible regulates the conduct of slaves and masters to ensure that the dignity, the human dignity of slaves was maintained. One of the core reasons the slave trade in Africa and America and so many places around the world was and is indeed evil is because it treats slaves as less than human and it, uh, it treats them, excuse me, it viewed slaves as non-humans and it treated them even worse. But that was very different in the first century. Well, here we are in the first century, and praise the Lord, we would all affirm that slavery is illegal in our country. So how is a text like this helpful to us? Well, we may not be slaves, but there are slaves today. And there are Christian slaves around the world today, and God's sufficient word has instructions for believers who are slaves. That brings us to the exhortation Paul instructs Titus to give to slaves. First and foremost, the re- most repeated command to slaves in the New Testament is right there in verse 9. Be subject to their own masters in everything. Now, slaves are in the obvious position of being subject to their masters, but this command is that Christian slaves must cultivate a heart of submission. A heart of submission. A slave could either obey because they had to, and not obey whenever they could get away with it. Or they could obey because they have a heart of submission. A slave could submit begrudgingly, or they could submit joyfully. They could do the, their work for the purpose of being seen, or they could do their work as unto the Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 5 and 6, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He also says in Colossians, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So a Christian slave could serve their master with joy, not so much because of who their master was, whether or not their master was good, but because the fact that the Lord was above their master. The Lord was their ultimate master. And so they could serve Him. Now the obvious exception to this, excuse me, uh, um, they are to take instructions from their master as coming from the Lord himself. And that is even more the case if their master is a believer. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, verse 2. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Again, if slavery itself was an inherent, objective, universal evil, God would have to tell believing masters, you need to free your slaves. This is wrong. This is wicked. You shouldn't be having these slaves. But he doesn't do that. He says, slaves, masters, love one another. 
Masters, treat your slaves well, honorably, justly, care for them, minister to them. Slaves, serve your masters. It's, it's really a, a relationship that could be mutually beneficial. The only obvious exception to the command to submit, of course, is if the master demands something of the slave that would be contrary to the law of Christ. But that's so obvious it doesn't even need to be stated in Scripture. Instead, Paul can say that they must submit in everything. In everything. The, the big and the small tasks. Obedience in the small tasks should be done just as faithfully, just as heartily as obedience in the significant tasks. Along with cultivating a heart of submission, Paul says here that slaves must aim to be well-pleasing. He says that at the end of verse 9. This doesn't contradict what Paul says elsewhere where he said, don't do this for pleasing men. This is more the idea of a, a delightful service. The idea is that slaves should not aim for the lowest bar of minimal effort. They should not aim to just get the task done. They should not aim to, to they should actually aim to, to get the task done exceptionally. When they work on a project, they should aim to do it with excellence. A master should look at the quality and effort and be pleased with the work. Slaves should aim to please their masters. The third way slaves should conduct themselves toward their masters at, there at the end of verse 9 is to not be argumentative. They should not oppose and contradict their master. That's what he's saying there. It's not to say they can't make suggestions or recommendations or provide alternatives as they seek to benefit their master. It is to say that they shouldn't respond in such a way as to convey superiority or arrogance. That's not because they are inferior. It's simply to say because they are in a position of humility. Much like if you were talking to your boss, you would need to do so respectfully. Now, depending on one's responsibilities as a slave, one could actually have a high level of trust and even potentially companionship with their master. Sometimes... This is probably more on the rare case. Certain slaves and masters would, would love one another in the best sense in, uh, of, of the word. They, they could be friends and trust one another. But even where that friendship is built, the slave must always remember that he is the slave and he is to honor his master. He should not allow, as we might say, familiarity to breed contempt. Well, stealing, stealing was a common temptation to slaves. In fact, one well-known Rabbi Hillel said, whoever multiplies slaves multiplies thieving. And he was just reflecting the stereotype that slaves were known to steal. Uh, they would steal for a variety of reasons, of course. But one of the reasons they might steal is because if they could amass enough money, they could eventually pay for their own freedom. They could buy themselves out of slavery. There were actually a variety of ways a slave could earn money that they themselves would, uh, would be for themselves. But if they didn't have those particular opportunities or if it wasn't happening fast enough, they would be tempted to steal. They could steal money. They could steal possessions to sell, to get money. And so Paul's instruction here to sl slaves is to not pilfer, not pilfer. Many slaves were entrusted, actually, with the money of their masters. 
Some were accountants, as I said. Some sold products in the marketplace. Some were bankers. Some were responsible to, uh, to purchase good for the home. Many slaves had easy access to coins and, and the possessions. It would be easy for them to pilfer on the small scale or to embezzle on the large scale. And Paul says here, the Christian slaves are to be faithful in their handling of their master's money. To be honest in the use of their master's resources. And to be trustworthy not to take what doesn't belong to them. That's really what it means when he says, but showing all good faith. In verse 10, showing all good faith is to be faithful, trustworthy. Like Joseph, who though he was a slave in Egypt, he could be trusted with every matter under Potiphar's household, including Potiphar's wife. Masters should be able to entrust all their affairs, even their family, to Christian slaves without concern. Slaves should demonstrate faithfulness and trustworthiness that they will work for their master's good. But the success of their master should not really be their ultimate goal, though it is a means to that. And their ultimate goal is described at the end of verse 10. Look at it. He says, So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Whatever else one might say about slavery, we can definitely say this. There is a way that it can be redeemed. Slaves must learn that no matter how good or how bad the situation is, their mindset must be that they are in a prime position to shine light on the glory and the beauty of the gospel. Their work and their attitude could draw out the the vibrant colors and the hues and the beautiful refractions of God's character as put on display in the glory of God. Of Christ. Like Moses, whose face shone when he had been in the presence of God, the way slaves conduct themselves can reflect the goodness of Jesus Christ. And as a result, masters and fellow slaves could be attracted to want to know this God that they serve. I mean, haven't we all heard testimonies of someone who said, Yeah, I I knew this believer, and I could tell that they had joy in their life. They had peace that I didn't have, and I wanted what they had, and the Lord brought them to to himself. That's the idea here. The way a slave conducts himself should draw attention because they are so different from those who complain, who steal, and who do as little as possible. Their faithful service should cause others to say, why are you that way? And then there's an opportunity for the gospel. Well, again, I'm not aware of any slaves among us, and uh, I'm, I'm guessing that no slaves will listen to this once we upload it to the internet. So how can we apply this to us? What significance does this have for our lives? Well, even though there is no direct correlation between slavery in the first century and modern employment, these principles certainly do carry over. You may not be owned, but you are to submit yourself to all of those who are in authority over you. If you have managers or supervisors, you ought to submit to them. You ought to do your work with diligence and excellence and faithfulness. Don't be like those who do the minimum possible. Don't call in sick when you're not. Show up on time. Work hard. Prove to be a faithful employee and you will stand out from the rest. 
several years ago, I was talking to a friend who, who used to be just retired um, a regional manager for a sporting goods store. And he was just lamenting how difficult it is to get people just to show up to work. Laziness marks many employees today. So don't let yourself get dragged down by our culture's poor work ethic. Don't do what I did. After, col- after college, I got a job at a school district as their webmaster and uh, doing software support. The other two guys in the department who were there a lot, they had been there for a while, they constantly complained and especially about their wages. And I'm ashamed to say that I got dragged into that. I allowed myself to be influenced by their cynical spirit and discontentment. I became just like them. And as a result, I was a very poor testimony. They were Jehovah's Witnesses, actually, and not very good ones. And in the truest sense, neither was I. If you've been unfaithful in your workplace, in whatever way, to whatever degree, today is a good day to repent and turn that around. Confess that to your boss and take deliberate steps to cultivate humility and faithfulness and integrity. And I trust that you will find that those around you will take notice. They will see. And you might soon find yourself having gospel conversations. Well, beloved, we are a redeemed society. We have been those who have been set free from the power and penalty of sin. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We are citizens of heaven. We are children in the family of God, of our heavenly father. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ who freed us from enslavement to sin so that we might live for him. We, we are, as, people, as Peter said in, in 1 Peter 2, 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people, excuse me, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have all been saved out of a life characterized by sin. And while we continue to battle against the flesh and fail in many ways, our lives should increasingly reflect the reality of our redemption. So that on the one hand, we don't bring reproach on the name of Christ, but more than that, others might see Christ in us. That is who we are to be, a redeemed society. Let's pray. Our Father, as we uh, look at these words and consider the significance of uh, what we've been called to, we all confess uh, of our uh, weakness and failures in a variety of ways. Lord, forgive us for not representing Christ well. You, you have done everything. You have moved heaven and earth. You've, you've brought heaven down to earth so that we might be set free from sin and in so many times and in so many ways, we have allowed ourselves to live in the flesh and, and live like the world. And we've been poor testimonies. Forgive us for that. And we give you praise and thanks that you have forgiven us of that. And that you desire and you call us, you urge us, you empower us to live as a redeemed people. May this day be a day of, uh, a marked day of, change, that we would grow in being testimonies for Christ in this world. We have people here in every sphere of society, government, private, education, home, 
Lord, help us to be a light for Christ wherever you have placed us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.